Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Real estate investing is seen as the holy grail of passive income and wealth independence. One of the popular facets of real estate investing is the tax advantage that much of the IRS code provides to the owner-operator. High on the list of cocktail party chatter topics is the concept of cost segregation. It's a way to deconstruct the components of real estate developments, depreciate them faster than the normal life of a building, and net the deductions against other income. To explain this concept, Mitchell Baldrige joins the podcast. This Texas-based CPA and CFP will take us through the ins and outs of cost segregation studies and discuss the importance of solid bookkeeping and delegation for entrepreneurs and other business operators. Welcome aboard, Mitchell. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this is a lot of fun because we're going to be talking about something that I know precious little about. So I'm going to be learning along the way here, but it's something that is definitely in cocktail party conversation amongst the wealthy who are dealing with real estate and not only from sort of a housing perspective, but just from a pure development and from an investment perspective. And we're going to tackle a couple of topics. The first one is cost segmentation and then related to real estate, but really for all wealthy people, we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of keeping good books and really putting some time and thought into how that gets achieved because the penalties for not doing that well can be severe. But let's get into the cost segmentation component first, or maybe even before we do that, maybe take us through your background real quick. Sure. So yeah, my name is Mitchell Baldridge. I own a few different companies, but my main business is a CPA firm in Houston, Texas. I'm a CPA. I'm a certified financial planner. And yeah, beyond that, my main firm, we have 200 high net worth families, a lot of real estate, a lot of small business owners, typically folks who own their own business out there. And then, yeah, beyond that, we own a cost segregation firm called the RE Cost Seg. And then I run better bookkeeping in my free time. So you, like me, you don't let much moss gather under your stones, et cetera. (laughs) No, no, I stay busy. And yeah, I have a wife and a couple of kids to boot, young kids. Cool. All right. So tell us about the concept of cost segregation and the idea of accelerated depreciation and why that's interesting and, and how this all can be helpful. Yeah. So cost segregation is a tool to help real estate owners defer tax. So what does that mean? Well, if I buy a stapler for my business, that's an asset, right? But it's not really an asset. It's just supplies that are incidental materials that just get depreciated year one. Well, if I buy a $10 million building for my business or as a real estate investor, that is not an incidental supply. That is an asset that the IRS will request that you depreciate over a long period of time, call it 39 years. So 2.5% of that $10 million building will be depreciated every year for 40 years. Well, 
cost segregation as a concept is an engineering study that takes this $10 million building and blows it into that big blueprint diagram of every component piece that the building is made of and assigns a tax life to every piece of that building. A building is 39-year property, but it's composed of a lot of different parts of which some are five-year, seven-year, and 15-year property. So performing this study allows these investors to push up the timetable for depreciation by quite a bit. And then furthermore, to add some fun to the whole thing, in 2017, they passed a tax law called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which allowed for 100% bonus depreciation of all this short life property. And then further allowed investors to bonus depreciate used property. So it does not have to be a brand new building. You could go buy a 30-year-old building and start to take 20% of the purchase prices depreciation year one. So with all this accelerated depreciation, what does that do for the taxpayer in numbers? Essentially, you're lining that up with income and you're able to use more of it earlier, it sounds like. Have I got that right? Sure. So yeah, I used to be a corporate tax guy in a former life and we would run tax provisions for big public company, you know, billion dollar companies out there. And you would create a calculation for what was either a deferred tax asset or a deferred tax liability. Well, what we're doing is essentially creating a large deferred tax liability. So by pushing all your depreciation to year one, which again, for a $10 million building out there could be $3 million. So I buy a building and the year I buy the building, I create a $3 million deduction out there. And we can talk more about how you utilize that deduction. But what that deduction does in effect is creates a liability of, hey, I'm pushing forward a deduction today. I'm going to owe tax on this later. But real estate has a lot of outs, so to speak. You can 1031 the property. You know, there's opportunity zones where after 10 years, the basis resets. You can die and the basis gets stepped up. So wealthy folks look at this as a big opportunity to defer taxes into a potential event that may just wash the whole thing or they may just be able to perpetuate the cycle, right? Right. It sounds like you've got escape hatches and you've got something that you can definitely plan for over the long term, no sure. matter what happens. So if you're able to sort of have your candy now, you can have your vegetables later or even not at all, it sounds like. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and so one question you sort of got into is like, who is this for? And one problem with real estate income in particular is it is passive income. Uh, rental income is deemed to be passive by the IRS. And so there's this category of passive income of which is great. People love passive income, right? But passive losses cannot offset active income. So folks need to be sure that they can use this service. And one way to be able to use these passive losses is to become a real estate pro or to be a real estate pro, which means you spend 750 hours and more than half your time buying, acquiring, brokering, constructing, reconstructing, kind of like working in a real estate trade. 
as right. deemed by the IRS for yourself. Because if I'm just an endodontist and I go buy an apartment complex and, and create a bunch of bonus depreciation, I may not be able to use it the way I think I want to. Right. So there's some real there's some real foresight that goes into this and really aligning your fact pattern to make sure that you're able to maximize it and at the same time stay within the four corners of what the IRS wants to see. Yeah. So I am a CPA. I'm not your CPA, dear listener, but you know, this is a huge strategy that might even be worth the hassle of implementation, but we're in the deep end of tax planning over here. So get with your professional and make sure that this is right for you. So we talked about whom it's for. What kind of projects have you seen it really work for? So people who hear real estate, that means lots of different things to different people. Where in particular do you see it working? Sure. So there's these kind of like levers of how this works, right? Like there's the percentage of land. You can't depreciate land because land hopefully is not going anywhere for the most part, especially if you're in the middle of the country. So the percentage of land in your project makes a difference where this $10 million building, if this is in a cornfield in the middle of Iowa, we're going to be able to attribute $9 million or shoot, maybe $9.9 million to the actual structure of the building as opposed to the land, where if this $10 million building is in Queens, New York, it might be $10 million of land and a building structure that's actually an appendage to the land parcel it's sitting on. Then another thing to think about is just, you know, the percentage of the property with that shorter useful life. So like, Gas stations, for example, are all 15-year property. So I'm from Texas, and we have these gas stations called Bucky's that are like a Walmart surrounded by a ton of gas pumps. Well, that entire 200,000-square-foot warehouse <laughs> is a gas station, which is 15-year life. It's no different than the little tiny cubby that the guy would sit in to sell you lotto tickets and cigarettes in the 90s. You know what I mean? in those tiny little gas stations. The third lever would be like how much leverage is on this property, considering that if I put $3 million of equity into this $10 million building and was able to deduct $3 million year one, I'm winning versus if I paid cash for the $10 million building and we're able to deduct $3 million, that's a very different outcome, if that makes sense. And then it's, you know, what is your percentage tax rate? If I'm in the highest tax bracket, this is a much better benefit than if I have a net loss because you just can't save taxes if you're not paying taxes, at least with this. And then the other big factor to think about is they're stepping down bonus every year. This year, it's 80%. Then it's going to go to 60, 40, 20, and bonus is supposed to go away in 2027. So there's a lot of ways to pencil out how this is going to work for you. So that last comment that you had about the bonuses, I guess, phasing out, is this a strategy with a shelf life? Well, bonuses phased in and out before. 2017 Tax Cuts Jobs Act just was like the boondoggle of all boondoggles of them unlocking used property and then unlocking 100% bonus both at the same time created a big run into just kind of this strategy being available for a lot more properties than it was before. Because you could even take like 
the last factor would be the payback ratio of like, what are you going to pay to get a study? Well, at arikaseg.com, we like to think we have a great product at an affordable price that's useful to a lot of people. And we do $100,000 Airbnbs all the way up to $100 million office buildings, right? Well, we get to show our end customer the amount of savings they're going to have year one relative to what they're going to pay us for the study as a payback ratio right up front. Well, when you have to project the savings over five years or even 15 years, it's going to be less attractive than just huge savings that hits you year one, right? Got it. So take us through the process. You've got a piece of property or you're interested in real estate generally. You've heard about the cost segregation component here. What's involved exactly? So we've created somewhat of a unique process of, it used to be only available to much bigger properties because someone would always have to kind of get on a plane and fly to Topeka, Kansas and stay at the motel overnight and walk around the property and take photographs and have their clipboard. And now, especially for smaller facilities, we do a virtual site visit. So you basically fill out our contact form. We ping you back and ask you a couple of questions. And then we get you a proposal of round about what we think we're going to save you and exactly what it's going to cost you. You pay the deposit and then we set up and 95% of our clients use this virtual site visit. So we set up a Zoom call like we're on and literally you or your property manager like walks around the property and starts categorizing evidence of what the parking lot looks like. And we take the site plans and we take the drawings and we take a good look at a lot of this five-year property. And then we build that sketch up internally. Probably takes about three weeks to turn around. And at the end of three weeks, we get you a full report that you can hand off to your accountant with the exact kind of component pieces of your property out there and what your tax lives will be. And from the accountant standpoint, they get this report and essentially that feeds the different deductions and different types of deductions that you're trying to take against the different income that you've got coming in. That's right. And so really like year one, the property owner is going to say they have this huge loss. That's going to be this kind of phantom loss of all this depreciation being pulled forward. But yeah, really we're concerned about how much of the property relative to the entire purchase price is a parking lot versus a window versus a roof versus a special air handling system. Like one weird quirk is like storage facilities. All the internal walls are movable walls. So they are all depreciable year one. And so we take every asset class and try to find these quirk elements of what are shorter life properties as deemed by the IRS And we kind of parse all that data for you and give you something back that you can hand off to your accountant and they can run with. So the wary among us would say, my gosh, this is too good to be true. What are the traps for the unwary here? I imagine sloppiness, a bad report, or a maybe a hastily put together report, as you mentioned before, not really identifying the right kinds of income to offset the deductions, et cetera. What do you see out there that people trip over? Yeah, I mean, a huge problem, and this happens with a lot of 
tax strategies, like R&D credits, for example, like you have to be able to like monetize the strategy. So if you're already in alternative minimum tax and you have a pass through R&D credit, like you just can't use it. So you're going to go pay this company to perform this study. You're not going to lose the credit. It's going to carry forward, but it's not going to save you a tax like you thought it would. And so Yeah. One, making sure that you're the kind of person who's qualified, who's able to use this credit. Other than real estate pros, people who can use these are short-term rentals has become a huge boondoggle of (laughs) these folks who have Airbnbs out there. That is not real estate, oddly enough, or there's a real estate component, but that's a operating business run on a piece of real estate. So you're able to, without being a real estate professional, so long as you materially participate in that business, you can cost segregate those and, and offset losses. Another new trap that's come into play are excess business loss rules, where if you have a $10 million W-2, you are limited to how much you can offset that W-2 income with business loss out there, which you're going to create using this strategy. It's about $600,000 for a married couple. So there's hedge fund folks, high, high, high net worth, high, high, high income people who think, oh, I'll go write checks into car wash deals and I'll find a way to materially participate in this strategy. And then they realize, oh, I can't deduct $4 million. I'm limited to 600 grand. This is a problem. The other trap is, yeah, it's certainly just one thing people get wrong is the land percentage a lot. Oftentimes people just say, oh, it's 20%. I'm just going to put 20% to land. Well, that's not how the IRS thinks about land as an attribution of your property value. And then there's just a variation of quality of what you're going to get. You're going to go get 10 cost segregations from 10 providers and you're going to get 10 answers. So there's always that. Yeah, the variability of who you're working with, with the report. Whenever I hear depreciation, I always sort of the old synapses fire up around recapture. Maybe take us through what happens on that and what you have to be worried about. Yeah, recapture is real. And yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So the issue is you're going to cost segregate the property on the way in, and then you're going to kind of cost segregate it on the way out through the form of a purchase price allocation. So recapture in concept is I took ordinary losses on all this property when I depreciated it. Now that I go to sell it, I'm going to have ordinary gains on the property rather than capital gains. Well, one good thing about recapture is really you can only get stung on the other side at the same kind of level as you got the benefit at the beginning. So it's just kind of Newton's law of tax, like what goes up must come down. So when you go to sell your property, a lot of this ordinary deduction that you bonused year one, you might have uh, ordinary income tax on the sale of it when you recapture it on the way back. Now, over a very long period of time, the good news is all that 1245 property, all that short life property that you deducted at the beginning, well, it does go down in value. Like a fridge year one is not worth the same as a refrigerator 15 years from now. And frankly, the refrigerator has been thrown out and replaced generally after 15 years. The other thing about recapture is just the year you bought the asset and took the deduction, 
you know, the year the capital went out to go buy the asset, you're matching a deduction with a capital outlay, and then you're matching the recapture with capital influx. You know, hopefully you don't lose your capital. If you lose your capital, that's a big problem with recapture. <laughs> that, that, that's that's <laughs> no so good. Don't, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but it's definitely something to think about. There are some ways to sort of plan around it. The other thing is just when you're taking the deduction, you want to be taken similar to like an IRA or any other kind of like tax deferral strategy. You want to make sure that you are deducting at a equal to or higher rate than you are suffering recapture on, or at least that the time value of the money pencils out. You know what I mean? Makes total sense. So before we talk a little bit about the bookkeeping component, someone wants to get started on the cost segregation project. What are their first steps? Yeah. So it's worth getting with your accountant on and just making sure that this is a feasible strategy for you. On Twitter, at RECOSEG, real estate, RECOSEG, S-E-G, we have pumped out a ton of content around what this looks like, who it's for. We also have some information on our website. You can also just come to our website, recoseg.com, fill out the contact form, and we run kind of like some consulting calls around this. Obviously, we want the accountant to take the lead and we want to make sure that this is right for you. But you know, there's a lot of information online to go read about this. So let, let's hit into the bookkeeping end of things, which is sort of a bee in my bonnet because I'm around a lot of different tax strategies and structuring, et cetera, where the broader strategy makes a ton of sense. And sometimes the follow-up or the administration is lacking. And as with any of these situations, it needs a good accounting spine, but then it needs a really good bookkeeping spine to go along with it to make sure that the numbers tick and tie Maybe talk a little bit about that importance of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Well, like zooming out just a bit, one of the ideas I've created in my life that I'm fortunate or proud of to have had come into my brain is return on hassle. It's just been one of my like favorite frameworks out there of just whenever you implement a tax strategy, even look at cost segregation. We just talked for 25 minutes about this really, really, really narrow subject that has, you have to know so much about this to make sure that you get it all right. It's almost like every time you embark on one of these tax strategies, you've gotten a new pet or a new little plant (laughs) that you have to water and feed. Otherwise it will die and you'll be sad. So before you enter into a new strategy, you have to make sure that, yeah, the return can be there in the sense that I'm going to hand you $10 and you're going to hand me back 100 That sounds wonderful. But if I have to talk to you every week or if I have to get a letter into the mail on time every three months and if I don't get it on time, the whole thing's going to unravel, I better make sure either I'm equipped to do that or somebody around me, or frankly, you who sold me this strategy, <laughs> not you, but you know, somebody is standing at that kind of like fulcrum of the action point that must get done. And somebody is guaranteeing that will all get done. And so bookkeeping is, yeah, everyone wants to go start a business or not everybody, but it's great to be a business owner. You get all these benefits. You get to make your own schedule. You can maybe make better money. You can accrue value. But when you read these old books out there, you go read 
I read a book a month ago or so, who is Michael Ovitz? And these five guys left William Morris agency to start their own agency. You know who their first hire was? It was a bookkeeper. <laughs> it was these five guys and their wives would take one day a week to answer the phones and then they hired a bookkeeper. And people now grow very, very large businesses without ever having a bookkeeper or just kind of think they don't need one. And technology is fantastic today. You don't have to use the green sheet with the little lines on it to balance your ledger anymore. We have QuickBooks and we have tools like our tool, Better Bookkeeping, and, and a lot of wonderful things out there, but somebody still has to have their eye on the ball, right? No, if the numbers don't tick and tie, then you're just setting yourself up for disaster. And, you know, not even just from the tax man, but just as a complete hassle otherwise. And and then when you're ready to sell the business, if it's been successful and you're five years later on and 10 years later on, you have everything from, you know, slippage to the potential for fraud when things don't line up. And that's when it not only is a horrible surprise, but that's when it really gets ugly in my experience. Yeah. So everyone's looked at a set of books and you just see this suspense number that's been going up and to the right for 10 years. And you go, hey, what is this, man? And they go, I don't know. Or it just says loan the shareholder or something. So having your numbers tied down on your balance sheet and having a real check-in, whether it be daily or weekly or monthly or quarterly or whatever of, hey, I know these numbers are right. They're tied down to the ground. They exist in reality. Like the amount of money that came in, that's correct. And the amount of money, hopefully that left to go into my pocket is right as well. And so folks out there run fairly complex businesses with no basis in accounting. And I think to your point of like, if you're building a business to sell, you better know exactly what you're selling because you're selling this stream of cash flows into the future. That's what people are buying. They're going to very, very, very much have rigor in looking through that cash flow stream when they go to buy the business. And you better be able to support that as a real thing out there, right? Well, I've told people before on this topic, you're going to pay now or you're going to pay later. And sure. if you pay now, you might be paying a lot less now to build something that's repeatable and good than having to reconstruct it with 50 different problems 10 years from now, six months before the transaction. And frankly, it's a big lever of value, I think, in a world sure. where a lot of people sort of want, let's call it, quote unquote, Sarbanes-Oxley level compliance with the numbers if you've bulletproofed your business in that fashion, that's worth something, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, like, look, to your point of pay now or pay later, let's look at the most classic example of this, of just, I'm a psychotherapist and I have my own practice and I do the thing every February. I take a day off of work and I get all my statements from all my bank and my credit card and I go to the cafe and I get three highlighters and I highlight every one of these statements with personal and business and whatever. It's like, if you go do all that work yourself and take a day off of work in February to try to get last year squared up, you lose the insight that you would have along the entire way. It's going to take you more work because you're going to be thinking back to last February about, hey, where did I spend that 10 grand in you're not going to remember anything. And 
it's just mind boggling that people run their businesses that way. And that story is actually a a story I heard at a cocktail party from somebody about exactly how they run their accounting process. And to me, having clean books that are current, up to date, that you can rely on, that you can look at, provide more value than just like getting your taxes done and staying out of jail. Hopefully, right? (laughs) You get to see- I was going to say, you hear lots of stories like that. You'd be going back for more cocktails. Your your heart palpitations would be going through your chest. Yes. So for me to have that huge lag between the actual moment that business is being done and the insights that can be generated through my business, and then 14 months later, I add up the scoreboard and I figure out what happened and hopefully I have enough money and hopefully I've been paying the IRS enough along the way. It's just no way to run a business. So I tell a lot of people, I'm always just like, pretend I was your partner (laughs) or pretend I'm your partner. Pretend that you have to be accountable to me and I have to know that you are running the proper due diligence and care for your business as you would if I were an investor. And then let's look at this business. And like, why would you not give yourself the same courtesy and honor as you would give an outside partner? Like, why is it not worth it to you to have these numbers tied down in this insight into your business of how you're growing or where your cash is going or how your expenses are creeping up? And I know small businesses, you talk about Sarbanes-Oxley, like if you're running a $300,000 a year practice, you don't have to go above and beyond and blow the doors off of, you don't want the expense, you don't want the headache, but you do need basic financial controls and basic insight into your business. And you don't have to be good at it. That's the point is that you can hire people to do it so that you can go and be awesome at what you're awesome at and make more money that way. To me, it's an example where if you don't know how to delegate, this is a good place to start because it will free up a lot of better time for you to do other things. That's a great insight is, yeah, there are groups of people who have built pretty strong processes of no matter what your business is, how to run accounting for your business. And my hope would be that if you were a e-commerce person out there and you met with the e-commerce accountant and you showed them your Stripe and your Shopify and your entire business and your records, and you sat down together and you collaborated and you got your financials straightened out, that they would be able to tell you some insight into your business that you don't already know today, or hopefully something that would create value in your business above and beyond what you paid them just to get your books done, right? Really good stuff. Mitchell, we've got two pieces of expertise out for our listeners in one podcast, so really appreciate it. How do our listeners find you? Oh, man, I appreciate you taking the time. I mostly do my writing on Twitter at Baldridge CPA, B-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E CPA. I run a newsletter called The General Ledger. I also have the RE Cosseg business and Better Bookkeeping where I run cost segregation services and I keep books for people. So you can find me any of those places. Thanks, Drew. No problem. I'll have that in the show notes. Mitchell, thanks for being on. Awesome. I appreciate it. Man, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests. <laughs>